Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jake Gold. Jake is one of Canada's most successful music managers, the president and CEO of the Management Trust Agency. With over four decades in the music industry, Jake is known for his six seasons as a judge on the Canadian Idol TV series, and perhaps even better known as the manager of the Tragically Hip, not once, but twice. After first signing the hip in 1986 and helping transform them into a national rock icon over a 17-year run, they separated for a curiously equivalent 17-year period before Jake re-signed the group in 2020 to direct their legacy in Canadian music history. Jake has been recognized by the Canadian Music Industry Awards as Manager of the Year no less than three times, and because he has seen it all and done it all, I am pleased to have Jake Gold join me today. Welcome, Jake, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm uh, currently at my office in downtown Toronto, and I'm great. Uh, just one small correction. We're not an agency. Agencies in our business book live acts. We're a management company. Okay. Just uh, wanted to make that correction because it's an important distinction in our business. Some people would refer to what managers do as agents, but that's not what we do. Well, and let's jump right into that, if you don't mind. What does a band manager do? How do you like the analogy that you are the kind of hub of the wheel? Um, I think that's fair. I mean, in a more modern day way to looking at it, I would say we, where if the band or the artist is the board of directors, we're the CEO of the corporation. So we run it. Um, I think and, that's the best way to describe it. So everything kind of runs through us, just like any CEO would do. They report to the board of directors. And would you say you rely more on your business skills, your legal skills, your psychology skills, or I guess it's an amalgam of all these things? Yeah, well, I'm not a trained lawyer, but I would, I could say that I've probably looked at more contracts than most lawyers. I, I've even done guest lectures at entertainment law schools. And I don't have a business degree either, but I've been in, I've been self-employed for over 40 years and run businesses. So, and uh, I've also been in therapy for many years. So from, I have experience in psychology. So, <laughs> so I, I could definitely say that managing artists takes in all of those things, uh, including yeah. dealing with all the people that you have to deal with on the other side, so. Absolutely. Well, you, you bring all of yourself into the job. I want to ask you, Jake, when does an artist need a manager? Is it from the beginning to allow them to focus on their art? Or do you recommend a new artist get kind of their hands dirty managing themselves first? Or is that a mistake? That's a, a question that I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that. And, and I think every artist is different. And I think that there are times where an artist may get to the point where it's starting to affect their work. There are times where they don't know what they have, really, because, you know, when we first signed the Tragically Hip in 1986, they had been a band for a couple of years already, but we're really not having any major growth. You know, people were going to see them. They were mostly in and around Kingston. Um, it was the same with The Watchmen when we signed them. Um, where when we signed Big Wreck in the first place, we saw a great guitar player, but we were actually looking with, with him, Ian Thornley, we were looking for a singer. And then, you know, we were doing some 
artist development with him over a year and then he we made some demos and he sang and we were like holy shit you can sing too like he didn't even yeah. know he could sing and so <laughs> we didn't need to find a singer anymore so it's like if you know i i like to say that what i do more more than anything is i spot charisma and and if 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 the artists in question have that then we can work on all the rest you you can mold the clay yeah i i'm not I'm not necessarily a packager, you know, it's never been my forte to sort of like, I'm going to find you songs and I'm going to find you dancers and stylists. And I, I, it's not what I do. I, I tend to work with artists that have a sense of self and that's important for me that they have their own POV. And my job is to take that POV and bring it to the masses. Jake, you have a great line. You are not interested in short-term greed but rather you're interested in long-term greed. Talk a little about that. It's so funny you said that because I literally texted that to someone 10 minutes before I got on this podcast. I, I'd sign on with you in an instant if you told me that. We were just joking, her, this woman and I, because she's a real estate agent, and, and we were talking about something to do in the real estate business, and I wrote that to her, and she, she thought it was really funny. It's just, uh, I like... I like to work with artists that want to have a career. So it's it's kind of an inside joke, really. And it's it's more about, you know, what are we going to do or what, whatever decision we make, it, what's it going to mean in five years? What's it going to mean in 10 years? Whereas, you know, let's just get the money now. Mm -hmm. And so when you when you work with artists and you make those kind of career decisions, you make those career decisions on the hope that they're going to be around for 20 and 30 and 40 years and you you look at the hip now i mean in 2024 will be 40 years amazing you know yep. and the watchmen are still around doing shows i'm not working with them anymore but they're still good friends of mine but you know we signed them in the early 90s you know here we are 30 years later they're still out there doing shows and same with ian thornley and big rex so yeah a lot of the decisions you make in, in early in in groups careers affects their longevity. And I think that's kind of where that saying comes from or that line comes from. Where did you read that, by the way? Because I can't, I, I can't tell you how many times I've said it. I just don't know where, I, where you would have read that. <laughs> well, it was attributed to you somewhere. So I'll, I'll have to find out where I read it, but it was definitely attributed to Jim I, I just want you to know, I didn't invent it. I stole it from somebody else. So. Hey, who invented anything? We all borrow it from somewhere. Yeah. I'm. I'm guessing, Jake, some artists would balk at hiring a manager. Why pay someone else 15 to 20 percent when they can do it themselves? What's your reaction to that kind of uh, feedback or viewpoint? Short term greed. <laughs> so, yep. so my thinking is this, and this is what I always say. My job is to increase your revenue and give you career guidance. If I can increase your revenue by more than whatever my commission amount is, then I'm actually a profit center for you. Mm -hmm. I'm not a cost, right? So yep. if it's 15, 20, whatever it is, you know, if I can go in and get you that much more money or increase your viability by that much more, so in the end you make more money, then, then I'm an investment, I'm not a cost. Absolutely, if you can grow the pie, even a smaller piece is bigger than- Right. Yeah. So that's that's kind of when whenever 
an artist asks me that question or someone asks me that question, that's kind of my stock answer. Okay. Because it's it's true. Uh, You know, I recently had a situation where uh, an artist came to me and said, this guy wants me to do this thing for them and they offered this much money. And I said, I'll I'll go get you more money. No, no, I'm good with that money. No, no. And I said, I need to earn my keep. Yeah. Right. And they went, okay, yeah. fine. And I went and got them 30% more money. Yeah. Right. So they were like, oh, I just made money from you. You know, so, what? That's a, that's a great thing, Jake. You're as a profit center. And when they understand that, suddenly uh, you're additive, not uh, decreasing what they take home. Yeah. Today, that pie that we're talking about is made up of, let's say, publishing, touring, album sales, merchandise. I want to assume that the relative importance of these pieces of pie has changed dramatically since you got into the business. You know, people talk about that a lot. And with a traditional touring act, that that really hasn't changed. People say mm. it has. But, you know, records used to cost a lot more to make. So we didn't really make as much money off record royalties back then because you know videos were recoupable costs certain independent uh promotion were recoupable costs record budgets were two three hundred thousand dollars to make an album you know what we used to spend on two inch tape we now can make records for so you know we we made a record with the hip in 1990 road apples and we had 60 reels of two inch tape that was twelve thousand dollars us for tape you know, not including the studio and the producer and all the other costs. So mm-hmm. you had to sell a lot of records to make that money back. Plus the deals were shit, you know, back then. And and you could only better the deals with more success. So obviously as the band got more success, we would negotiate the deals. And the record companies fully expected you to do that. They wrote those deals because they had to have somewhere to go. Like, and that's, that's just the way, you know, leverage is the best negotiator tool in the world so sure. so we never really made a ton of money off records in the past and so all the money really was made off touring and merchandise and publishing today nobody makes a lot of money off streaming record sales are significantly down in terms of overall numbers you can make money off streaming if you're in the billions of streams but you don't see many rock acts in that yep. in that realm and so it's still back to publishing and merchandising and touring. So it really hasn't changed that much. People just assume it has. And well, today we don't even know what an album is in terms of buying an album. As you say, now it's streaming. Nobody's making money off that. You weren't making right. money off it before. Touring, especially post-pandemic, I assume this is most important financially and for brand building. Is touring a profit generator or a loss leader today, knowing that everyone's coming back hard? Well, it, it's funny because uh, uh, I go to this conference every year in Aspen called Aspen Live, and it's a lot of the live touring people from around uh, North America go. And I've been going to it since 96. Uh, we do these uh, sort of Zoom check-ins every so often, and we had one last night, and a lot of the promoters and agents and marketing people from the various promotion companies were, were on the call. They were talking about how there's so much inventory out there right now where there's so many acts touring because we're post-pandemic and we're not really post-pandemic because tours are getting postponed and dates are getting canceled because someone in the crew got COVID or, you know, like this is still going on, 
right? You're hearing about it all the time. They have to postpone this show. They have to postpone this show. They're coming back for this show. And there's, people are still going to shows from tickets they bought in 2020, you know, that are rescheduled and rescheduled. So there's so many shows out there. One of the guys was saying that in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona that night, there were 47 shows that night. Just right? that night. Yeah. So while there is a lot of touring out there and there is, uh, uh, there is uh, uh, opportunities to make money as a touring artist, the problem is, is that, you know, there's only so much money in the marketplace to buy tickets and everyone's trying to make up for the two years that they weren't out on the road all at the same time. Yeah. So that's that's affecting tours. There are certain shows that are selling out um, and those are the big, 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 big name artists. And a lot of the other shows are doing OK, mm. but I wouldn't say that everything's doing great. You know, mm. and it's sort of a it's almost like a feast or famine right now, because, you know, some of the guys were saying that some of the shows that they thought would normally sell out that sell out every time aren't selling out. And some of the shows that they didn't think would sell out are selling out. I think it's uh, we're still in that up in the air phase. I think we won't really see the fallout until 2024, possibly. Mm where maybe things start to settle back and everything's been caught up and now things are going back to a, a touring schedule, you know, a regular kind of sane touring schedule. Yeah. But if you think about it, like Toronto probably has, Toronto's market three in North America in terms of shows. So it's New York, LA, Toronto in terms of how many shows come through this market on any given night you know, between the club shows and the big venues, it's it's pretty unbelievable how much how many shows are out there. And there's yeah, people only have so much money. It, no, your your point is well taken because to Joe Public, me being Joe Public, all I hear about is how can't get tickets, prices have gone through the roof. But as you note, the big guys are doing great and they're trying to catch up on lost time. And maybe the smaller and mid range guys are the ones that are gonna have a harder time and, until things settle down. Yeah, I mean, even some of the big guys, I mean, the Eagles came through, they, they had two nights booked at the arena, at the Scotiabank Arena, and they basically sold enough tickets over the two nights to sell out one night. Oh, boy. Right? So, yeah. and that's the Eagles, right? Yeah. You know, normally, they do they do a couple of nights there. Yeah. So, I think, uh, especially with an older demo, there's still some uh, COVID hesitancy. Yep. With an older demo, I think sure. that, you know, I have a young guy that works with me. He's 25. He goes to a lot of shows. All the shows he wants to go to are all sold out. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. and they're all, you know, the kind of stuff that appeals to him. Um, and, you know, he's going to history and he's going to like the big clubs, the two, 3,000 seat clubs and the Massey halls and some amphitheater shows. But mostly he's going to the bigger club shows. Yeah. You know, and they're all they're always all sold out. I know because I have to get them tickets. So <laughs> that's great. Jake, this is a great time to go all the way back and get the Jake Gold story. Somewhat surprisingly, you're actually not a native Torontonian nor a native Canadian. Where were you born? Tell us about your upbringing. So I was born in Lakewood, New Jersey. Uh, my parents uh, met uh, in 1957 in um, in Miami. 
my dad was from Toronto. My mom was from uh, the Lower East Side, New York. She was the original Coffee Talk. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, they got married soon thereafter. I was born in 1958. We lived in Lakewood for about six months. Then we moved to Manhattan. And my brother was born 13 months after me. And when I was two, we moved to Toronto. And where did you settle in Toronto? Well, first we were in uh, Bathurst Manor. And then we moved to Bathurst and Steeles. And we lived there till, I guess, 1966. And then we moved around a lot, 66, 67, and ended up settling back in um, Bathurst Manor for a couple of years, and then ended up going back to Bathurst and Steeles. So, <laughs> so I would say that most of my life, I, I guess from grade six on, was in the Bathurst and Steeles area. And uh, you want to give a shout out to the uh, elementary school and high school you attended, Jake? Well, I went to a lot of elementary schools. So <laughs> um, I went, junior high, I went to um, Fisherville Junior High School, yes. um, which is famous because if you watch the documentary, two documentaries, um, but if you watch the Rush documentary, they went there and there's a shot of going along the road and there's the school where they went to, to junior high. And I went to Newtonbrook Secondary School. Well, we were your bitter rivals, Jake. I went to A.Y. Jackson. Oh, yeah, we were, we, were, we were bitter rivals. <laughs> and in a uh, quirky side note, uh, Fisherville was where I went to Sunday school. So uh, for those in the audience who had to go to Cheder, uh, that's where I went every Sunday. So we're, we're in a similar neighborhood. You went to school. When you finished up at Newtonbrook, what did you do? Did you work? Did you go on to more school? Um, I took a year off and I started a, a, I was in a, I bought into a carpet cleaning business with a couple of friends and then I injured my knee playing basketball and I couldn't work. So mm. they bought me back out. They just gave me my money back and I decided I was going to go to school, go back to school and I went to Centennial College. I thought I'd take business administration. But I'd always hung around bands. I used to sing and cover bands in high school. And so it was music was always a thing for me. You know, I had gone to lots of concerts over the years. I saw my first concert in 1964 with my kid. My older sister was forced to take me to see the Beatles. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Yeah. That, um, that was that was where? Maple Leaf Gardens. Oh, yeah. Wow. Don't remember a thing about it. Just a lot of a lot of screaming. Um, <laughs> Uh, they didn't have great PAs back then, so the audience was louder than the band. Um, <laughs> yeah, and they played very short sets. Um, that's all I remember. I went, I went back, I went to Centennial College out in uh, like Markham and uh, I guess 401 area, and didn't have a car, so I was like public transit to get to school all the time. I got bored there. I had friends that were in bands, and in April of that year, I guess it was 79, maybe 70, 79. My friend's band were doing some touring and they asked me if I wanted to come on the road and I went on the road as their lighting guy. Wow. And and I would get up and sing the encore with them. <laughs> yeah. They would let me do a Peter Gabriel song. What, what were your qualifications for lighting at that time, Jake? None. <laughs> None. I had good rhythm and I had, a, I, I had a, an eye. They taught me how to set up the lights, and then I learned how to set up the lights, and I learned how to flick the switches. 
<laughs> there you go. Um, it was, yeah, it was a really um, archaic old lighting board that basically had 12 channels with 12 toggle switches and you just turn them on and off and there was a master switch so you could go dark all at once and and that was it and then i uh i met someone visiting from los angeles in late 79 i went down she was visiting here in the summer and then i went to visit her in in the winter in december of 79 and i decided to just stay because i was born in the u.s i could stay there okay I worked selling office supplies over the phone in LA and we used to work 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. Um, so all my days and nights were free. Some of the people that worked with us were actors and musicians because that's the kind of job that you could do, you know, and you could make decent money doing it. Really, to be honest, um, it completely taught me how to use a phone. Like, yeah. like it really like sharpens your phone chops. And back mm -hmm. then there was no email, there was no fax, there wasn't even a fax, right? So everything was done over the phone. And so, you know, you learn how to cold call people and how to get things done. And I managed to, uh, one of the women that I worked with, she was an actor and she was in a play and I went to see her play. The director, she introduced me to the director and I said I had done some lighting stuff. He uh, he said, well, I'm doing a show at this place called the Variety Arts Center, and I need someone to run the, the lighting AV stuff. And I said, oh, well, I'll check it out. So we, one night we went out, we went to the theater, and I looked at it, and I was like, okay. They had a technical director there, and he sort of taught me how their stuff worked. And then I became this the lighting guy for these theater shows there, and that was all the way downtown LA. It was called the Variety Arts Center. And that was 1980. And so I would do this morning job and then four nights a week, I would be at the theater doing mm -hmm. this other job. At some point, the other guy was the technical director quit and they just made me the technical director. And I didn't know, I hardly knew anything about this stuff, but I managed to fake my way through it all. And uh, fake it till you make it. Yeah, there was lots of, lots of really crazy, interesting shows going on because it was like a private club. And they had like this ballroom on the on the top floor where they would have um, dinners and shows. But it was like fame, like Cary Grant and Buddy Epson and these kind of people were members. So they would all show up in tuxedos and they'd have these fancy dinners and then they would all get up and perform. So you had to make mm -hmm. sure everything worked, the mics and everything worked up there. And then uh, there was this cabaret theater. And then there was this um, big, like traditional type theater, like a Massey Hall's half the size, though, of type theater where they would have shows like Ricky Lee Jones and those kinds of artists would come through. So, you know, I'd be running follow spot for this particular act and those kind of things. Eventually, in 81, I moved back to Toronto. My friends were in a band. A guy I grew up with was a drummer in a band called The Numbers. They had changed their name to Hot Tip because there was another band called The Numbers. And they were putting out a record. And he said, you know, would you be our lighting guy tour manager? Because he knew I had organizational skills as well. And I said, sure. And they were planning the tour and everything was going right. You know, and I'd met their agents because we were talking about touring logistics and stuff like that. They ended up, the guitar player was the leader of the band. He ended up quitting. So the tour never happened. And then the other three guys decided, well, we're going to keep going together. We'll find another guitar player. And they found another guitar player and they changed their name to the Purple Hearts. And the drummer, who was my childhood friend, approached me and said, 
we want you to be our manager. This was sometime in mid to late 81. And I said, well, I don't know anything about it. And he said, don't worry, you'll be good. And I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do then. Because I had nothing else going on. So uh, I was working part-time at a stereo store called Hi-Fi Express at Young and Eglinton selling stereos. And I was managing this band. And then I got fired from the store because I took a day off to go do a gig with the band. Yep. And that was, I remember that day forever because it was uh, November 29th, 1981. And I've never worked for anybody since. It was a pivotal firing. It changed your life. Jake, yeah. let's go to 1985. You started your management company, the Management Trust with your partner, Alan Gregg. Actually, apparently this was 86. And this was apparently a chance meeting between the two of you. How did you get started with Alan? So we met in 85. Okay. And we started the company in 86. So I had, you know, I had been a manager now for about five years. I had signed this band New Regime and we had a deal with RCA. Um, it was my first recording act. Uh, we had this sax player named Earl Seymour that would play some shows with us. And he played on some of our records. Earl was from Edmonton. Uh, he grew up with Alan Gregg. And Alan had been investing and backing this singer named Peter Panther. And he was looking for someone to help him set up a showcase in Toronto. Alan was living in Toronto now. Peter was still in Edmonton. You know, set up a showcase, uh, bring some record people out on the chance that maybe we could get him a record deal. And Earl introduced me to Alan and said, you should talk to Jake, he can help you with this stuff. We met in uh, December 85. At the time I was working with another guy, we had a partnership. We were partners on some acts and some acts I helped him and some acts he helped me. It wasn't going great on a personal level. The acts, everything was going fine on that level, but it wasn't going great on a personal level. At some point in January of 86, I called Alan. I said, hey, I'm gonna work from my house now. I, I, I'm not working with this other guy anymore. I'm just gonna you know, set up at my home. And it was a lot harder to set up at your home then than it is today. <laughs> yeah, and, there was no and, Zoom. Well, there's there's no nothing. There's no email. There's no nothing. This is 1986. And he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm just going to start my own business. And he said, well, we should meet and talk about it. So I went over to his office. I was living at Bathurst and Eglinton, and his office was at Young and Eglinton. And he lived at Avenue in Eglinton. So we were all, we were pretty close geographically, which then made, mattered. Oh, yeah. And I went over to his office and he said, let's run some numbers. So we ran some numbers and he said, okay, how about this? I'll, I'll back it. You do the work. Yep. You know, and we'll be partners. And I said, okay. And January 31st, 86, we started the business. Was this business originally named Jacob J. Gold and Associates? Yeah. And, and so, when Alan became more involved as things started to move along, we thought we should, you know, change the name so it represented more of the company and not just me. And that's when it became the, I think it became the Management Trust in 88, 89, something like that. Interesting enough, we were, we were on paper still partners till like December of last year. Um, and, and cause we kept saying, Alan just kept saying, well, why don't you just like buy my shares for a dollar? Like I haven't been involved in 20 years and, or more. And I said, you're right. And we never bothered to. And then one day I said to him, I think we should probably do that now. And he goes, no, you're right. And so we did that. So as of January 31st, 2022, 
he's technically on paper no longer my partner. He's still my really close friend, and we still talk all the time. But yeah, it's all mine now. Well, it was a great partnership, and one of the most significant chapters is the Tragically Hip. They have been called the most Canadian band in the world by the BBC. You signed and began work with the Hip in 1986, managing them initially for 17 years. How did you get involved with the Tragically Hip? What stage of their career were they at when you took over their management? So they had, they had been a band for a couple of years, and they had gone through one member change where there was a sax player, and then Paul Lanois came in in um, April of, of 86. A friend of theirs, uh, a school chum, his brother-in-law was a friend of Alan's. His brother-in-law, Hugh Siegel is his name, uh, sent Alan this cassette tape. We, uh, we listened to it and we thought, oh, this is interesting. Let's set up a gig so we can see them play live. And we set up a gig and they started to play and literally under 30 seconds into the first song, I looked at Alan and I said, we got to sign these guys tonight. Like it was mm -hmm. that, it was lightning in a box. And we went to the Pilot Tavern. That was August of 1986. We went to the Pilot Tavern with the band after, and we said, here's, we, we want to do this. And they went, okay. <laughs> and that's, that's how it started. We, uh, we typically think of rock musicians coming up scrappy from tough upbringings. But uh, if I understand right, the guys in the hip actually came from the right side of the tracks. Mostly, I think. Mostly, yeah. But I don't know. I mean... I think it would be wrong to use those terms today, but but uh, um, wrong, right? I guess um, you know they came from good families, but they were scrappy guys. You know, like they were musicians that wanted it. They were, you know, they get in the van and they do their thing, and they were, you know, they had you know punk rock mentality. They weren't necessarily mm -hmm. punk rockers, but they liked punk rock. But they had a punk rock mentality. They had that kind of ethos. You know, it was like they were definitely an all for one, one for all kind of mentality. Like they, you know, we, we kept them on the road nonstop for the first two years. It was just like, and they just got better and better. You know, they talk about the 10,000 hours and they were mm -hmm. putting in the 10,000 hours and they just got really, really good. And that became their rep. You know, you know, that first EP that we made, we, 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 you know, scrapped together some money, found a studio through a friend and that would give us some cheap, you know, inexpensive time. And Ken Greer, who played with Tom Cochran, he produced that EP and him and I, there was all this, uh, it was like a musicians, people in the music industry hockey game on Sunday nights at Forest Hill Arena. Yeah. And so Ken played, I played, there was a bunch of guys, that, you know, radio DJs, Andy Frost from Q107, there was all these guys that played. And uh, I remember saying to Ken, like, you know, what are you doing? I'm thinking about I'm going to start producing records. And I said, well, you should, you know, check out this band I'm working with. So mm. that's how that came about, literally <laughs> from playing hockey together. Uh, we made this EP. We decided we're going to put it out ourselves. And because I had a relationship with RCA because of the band New Regime, uh, they agreed to license it from us. And that's how the EP was born, you know, out of that. Well, as you note, the hip built their reputation on they're playing live people may not realize that they regularly played to relatively small audiences in smaller clubs well that was like how you got started that's how it went but you know we knew how great the band was live and we knew the we needed to put something out so we could get them across the country 
that was our main goal was, you know, we needed to have a, a vehicle that people could write about or talk about because um, you couldn't tour them without some kind of product. And you had to make a record then. Like it wasn't, you know, I think it came out on vinyl and cassette. Wow. <laughs> CDs didn't exist yet. CDs, CDs did exist, but only special records came out on CDs. Like they didn't make them yet in 1987. This record came out, we put it out in Kingston alone in December 87. So the band could have friends have their record. And then we put it out nationally in uh, January 88. And we toured across the country and we were playing bigger venues and selling out bigger venues than most acts that had gold records at that point. Because yeah. the rep was spreading across the country. You knew you were onto something. Yeah. I wanted to we talk about some. Something. We knew we were onto something the first day we saw them. So. Yeah. Like you say, lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Let's talk about some key hip moments. They started their own music festival, another roadside attraction in 1993. The first event was held in Winnipeg. What was your involvement in this festival? And, and how do you look back at that uh, in terms of uh, their history and their development? So just a correction there. The first show was in Victoria, British Columbia at the okay. Speedway. Um, and we worked, uh, we did Victoria, Vancouver. Then we skipped Alberta, came to, I think it was Saskatchewan, the Winnipeg, and the Thunder Bay. Then we came down here and then we finished in Calgary and Edmonton. So mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a fucked up routing to say the least, but it's just the way it had to go. We had done a lot of festivals in Europe Nobody had really done a big touring festival across Canada. You know, Lollapalooza had played Toronto, Montreal, maybe Vancouver, but no one had actually done one across Canada. So we said to the band, we should do one. We should get some bands and we should be the ones doing it. Okay. So we pitched it to, at the time, CPI, which was the big promoter in the country. And they had offices in Vancouver and Toronto and, uh, you know, relationships across, across the country. Uh, they had done lots of big national tours. And we went into their offices and uh, I went in with, with uh, an agent who was, you know, looking after the band at the time from the live side. And um, we sat at this big boardroom table and I pitched the idea. And Michael Cole, who was running, uh, who was the head of CPI, who owned it, he was sitting at the other end of the table. And, you know, everybody else around the table was like, ah, I'm not sure, blah, 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 you know, and then Michael stood up and went, this is a great idea. Let's do this. <laughs> and, uh, and we did it. Uh, we did the first one in 93. We did another one in 95. And we did another one in 97. Really successful. And I'm sure you learned a ton on the job, so to speak. Well, we had never done anything like that. We were learning, we were learning, you know, we had really good people around us who, you know, cause that's the key, you know, as a manager, one of your jobs when you're doing things like that is to find people that know more about that stuff than you do. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and, and your job is to manage it all. Promoters had experience doing it, but we were literally, we intentionally didn't want to go into tr traditional venues. So we were building cities in every city hmm. and we had two stages so when one was being built in one city and we were playing that show there was another one being built in the next city and they were flip-flopping and so you know you had to do things like that you had to set up you know security you had to set up water toilets like all of the kind of stuff that people just take for granted you know and we wanted to have a you know the 
the vending village where people could sell shit. And so, and we had that and you had to have beer gardens and, you know, it was all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we got better at it. You know, we, we even put out a newspaper that I came up with this idea calling it the roadside guide. And so we even sold some ads in the newspaper. People would walk in and they'd get this, this newspaper and it had a map of everything on site. It had the lineup for the day and when the bands were on and it had little bios on each band. And so people, so, you know, it was like four pages, broad, broad page. Like, and we got it, we actually had it printed by uh, one of the big newspaper printers and we shipped them around the country. So when people walked in, they'd get it. And we did that every year and it became a thing, you know, and we had a lot of fun with it. And we had amazing bands playing on those, on those three, three years we did it. Yeah, I had to, at times, Midnight Oil, Crash Vegas, Daniel Lanois. That was, the mean, first, uh, that was the first tour, but, you know, we yeah. had Blues Travel, we had Ziggy Marley in the year two, we had Spirit of the West, we had Ron Sexsmith, we had uh, Matthew Sweet, and year, year, year three, we had Los Lobos and Sheryl Crow, and, like, you know, we always made it uh, international, we made it special, the acts had to have a certain ethos, we weren't shooting for like the best, most biggest commercial act. We were looking for bands that were like-minded. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it made us better every night because we were playing with really great acts. So I want to talk to you about another event that did not rely so much on your operational skills. In 1995, the hit played Saturday Night Live and Dan Aykroyd, fellow hometown hero from Kingston, appeared just for the purpose of introducing their performances. How did getting on Saturday Night Live come about, and how'd you get Dan Aykroyd involved? So Dan is from Kingston. Well, he's from Ottawa, but he's, he lived in Kingston, and he's friends with the guys. At the time, Saturday Night Live was going through a bit of a lull, and they were looking to kind of like bring some star power back into the show. And so Lorne Michaels had approached Dan and said, uh, you know, we'd like you to be on the show. Now, Dan had a rule that he believed that former cast members should never be hosts. So while he was on the show, and the whole show was mostly Dan, John Goodman was actually the host that night. So they had John and they had Dan. Dan said, yeah, I'll do it, but I want my friends, the Tragically Hip, to be the band. And Lauren goes, yeah, whatever you want, Dan. So, you know, <laughs> it was like one of those. So then we got the call in March 25th, 1995. And I always remember the day because that was my mom's birthday. And because okay. she was from New York, we brought her to New York for the weekend. Uh, so how she, great was that? Yeah, so she could go to Saturday Night Live and, and see the guys, because she knew all the guys, right? And and it was her hometown, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's how that came about. So Dan was on the show a lot. It was all his old skits and stuff, but he technically wasn't the host. It was it was John Goodman. And then he introduced the band, So obviously, for the two songs that we did. And what do you remember about that night? Were you there? Were you? Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting thing that a lot of people don't know. I mean, more words sort of more got out about about how the process works. But, you know, Thursday is your day when you're the band. So you rehearse all day and there's camera rehearsals and sound rehearsals and, and all of that. And then on Saturday, they actually do the show from 9 to 11 in front of a live audience. And then from 11 to 11.30, it's a two-hour show, 9 to 11. From 11 mm. to 11.30, they cut what doesn't work. And the audience leaves, and they have a new audience come in that's fresh. 
and has never heard the jokes before. So the band actually gets to play in front of an audience on that stage in that 9 to 11 because they do the whole show run. So by the time they actually perform, they would have done all day Thursday. They would have done the two performances on the pre-show run, and then they do the show. So it's a really it's they make it so it's really comfortable for everybody. Yeah. And in that half hour, Lorne Michaels meets with the whole cast and they decide what worked, what doesn't work, and they cut a half hour from the show. And you just got to hope as a band you don't uh, have your peak performance during one of those uh, well, they record it. ones. They record it. Oh yeah. <laughs> but they don't they don't use the pre-record. No, no, you're yeah, I think I think by that point, I think, you know, we're talking about a band that's, you know, by 1995, 1995 was a crazy year because we headlined our first arena tour in Canada. We did Saturday Night Live. We did 30 shows with Paige Plant in North America. So we were on the road with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and Robert Plant was hanging out with us every night. He would play drums and sound check and like with us. And then we did four stadium shows with the Rolling Stones in Europe. And we did another roadside attraction that year. Wow. So that was a crazy year. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for a good Robert Plant story. Is he a, a, a quirky guy or a straight guy or? He's super nice, super generous. He's really a musician's musician. Yeah. And um, do you remember, do you remember the, the Led Zeppelin stories about the, the Hyatt house? They used to call it the Riot House. They had those, <laughs> right? So uh, Gord Sinclair and I were talking to Robert in San Diego. We were doing our own show in L.A. the next night. And they had, they had a day off, and then they were playing um, another show. Robert said, you know, where are you guys? Uh, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing the show at the House of Blues in L.A., and... And he said, where are you staying? We said, oh, we're staying across the street at, at the Hyatt House. And Robert looked at us and went, I have fond memories of that place. <laughs> and, fond and memories he, indeed. Right? Because everyone knew the stories. And, and we, yeah. you know, it was, a, it was a laugh. But he would come off the stage, and our dressing room was always the one right behind the stage. And theirs were sort of down the hall, more hidden away. And Robert had his own, and Jimmy had his own, and then the band had their own. And um, he would come off the stage and come into our dressing room before the encore. And he'd be like, someone throw me a cigarette. And we'd throw him a cigarette, because you could smoke inside then. And, you know, we'd be talking, you know, what, what, what should we do? He'd say, like, what should we do for the encore? I don't know, do this. Oh, no, we already did that. You know, and it would be like that conversation. And then we'd like, well, play this. And he goes, good idea. And then they'd go out and they'd play that song. Hmm. And so Robert, Robert, like he hung out with us because he wanted to hang out with musicians. And Jimmy mm -hmm. was a very private guy. Like we only met Jimmy once in, mm. in the 30 shows. Wow. You That's know? private. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Robert, like I said, was with us every day. So it was just how they were, you know. And what was your experience in Europe with the Rolling Stones? Do they uh, interact with the other bands that are participating with them, or do they keep to themselves? Well, the first night we played, we were in uh, Hanover, Germany. It was sixty thousand people, wow. and and when we went we went on stage at seven thirty. It was packed because it was a GA audience, so it was like first come first serve, and it was pouring fucking rain, and the stage wasn't covered. Oh boy, it wasn't a covered stage. And we played right through the rain. The Stones guys were all side stage watching it. 
because they want to see this band, right? Because they had heard about us. And they, after we walked off, they were all like clapping and, you know, Keith Richards, you know, patted Robbie on the back and, and that. Now, in classic Stones form, you know, we played 7.30 to like 8.15 and they went on at 9.15. And at nine o'clock, of course, the skies opened up and the clouds went away and it was all clear and they came <laughs> out and there was no more rain. It was like they planned it, you know. We did Hanover, Cologne, and then we did two nights at this festival site in in Belgium. And on the last night, no, it was the second, the, sorry, the first of two nights, they invited us into their. There was like different levels of of lounge of places where you would. So we got invited into their private area. Okay. And and you know played pool with Keith Richards and it was like that hang. And then there's a great picture of the band standing around the pool table with everybody in the stones and the band and, and Keith's got his arm up on Robbie's shoulder. And, uh, and you can see Gord, he's standing behind Mick Jagger and you could see he's got this smirk on his face because you, you know, he can't believe he's in the photo. <laughs> right. That's like, he's, you could just, you could tell when you look at him, he's got that smile of, I can't believe I'm here, right? So surreal. And the, the boys Remember, this proved their... This is before camera phones or anything. So yeah. they had an official photographer, and then we had to wait to get the photos sent to us. <laughs> and it was like, you know, that kind of thing, right? Well, they certainly proved their Canadian bona fides by uh, playing through rain. So I guess that's why the reputation was there. <laughs> well, it, at least we didn't play through snow, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That would have been worse. Probably would have been a little easier, but, you know. <laughs> Jake, I have to ask you big picture when we talk about the legacy of the hip. Bruce Springsteen to New Jersey, is that the closest analogy to the tragically hip to Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think after Gord passed away, they, um, I think it was either the New York Times or uh, somebody said that, you know, Bruce Springsteen to New Jersey but, and something else, and that's not even close uh, when they were talking about Gord. But that's probably... The, when people ask me, you know, how would what would you say? Uh, that's kind of the closest in terms of how they're revered mm -hmm. um, in in their. But this is a country, not a, a state. Although the state of New Jersey may have as many people as Canada, <laughs> yeah. not that, but close. You know, uh, I think. But I think that's for others to decide. Really, it's not really for me to decide. You know. Yeah. In. 2003, you stopped managing the hip. In 2020, after 17 years, you re-signed the Tragically Hip. Why did you initially stop, and how and why did you get reinvolved in 2020? Well, we we parted ways. It's like a marriage, you know. Not not all of them last, and I know because I've been through two. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was just, you know, things. There was a lot of upheaval on both sides, and uh, they just said, "Hey." You know, we want to make a change. Mm -hmm. So basically, they fired me, and I, you know, went on to do other things. And um, and then in 2020, the guys who were working with them decided to resign, and I was still in touch with them. I had gone to six of the final tour shows, and we were still friends. And uh, I said to them, "Hey, guys, like, you know, someone's got to." do this someone's you guys haven't really done anything since Gord passed away and since your final tour and I think it's time to like let's get this thing going 
when we had a meeting and after the meeting they called me and they said let's have another meeting and we had another meeting and they said let's do it so that was june 2020 and i'm going to assume jake this time around your tasks are completely different i would would it be safe to say now you're like an asset manager you're managing a back catalog a legacy archival projects there's there's so much going on and that's the thing that kind of irked me because one of the things that was said on the call is one of the guys in the band said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said to them, this is as much my legacy as it is yours. And that kind of struck home with them. And then they looked at me and they went, no, you're right. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this is our shared. It was a shared experience. Right. This is our legacy. So let's, let's, let's do this. So, um, uh, and they realized that no one was better to look after that than me because no one knew it better. And, you know, we had, they had been looking for these lost tapes for, for two years and no one knew where they were. I started back on June the 8th, 2020 and June the 9th at five o'clock that afternoon, I found the tapes <laughs> and that became the record we put out called Saskadelphia. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was like these two-inch tapes that had all these songs on it, and no one knew where they were. And I figured out where they were. Amazing. And uh, that's when they realized, holy shit. Like, <laughs> you know, and then I started getting messages from the guys going, fuck, we're so happy this is happening. Yeah. You know, it was like great. that kind of get, thing. Get the gang back together. Yeah. And, you know, they, they played at the Junos. They had Feist sing lead vocals with them. I think by the time this airs, there'll be another television performance that's happening tonight. That's a surprise. So okay. by the time it airs, people will already known about it. Um, so breaking news. Yeah. So there's there's that that's going that's going to be on tonight. And uh, and you know there'll be little stuff like that. I mean, when people always ask, are they ever going to play again? It's the answer is kind of never say never. You know. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So. There's all kinds of things going on. Uh, we, you know, we're we're working on a documentary for Amazon Prime that's going to come out in 2024. That's a four-part doc that's going to be uh, basically the the whole career of the band, and it's uh, you know to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the band. And you know, we're putting doing reissues. We're putting out stuff that never came out on vinyl before. We're now putting out on vinyl because there's a big vinyl resurgence and the vinyl collectors want it. So there's all of those things. There's box sets, you know, there's lots of stuff. You know, when I when we split, I went went on television, as you know, and um, it was a really good education for me because I learned a lot about the television side of things and how those things work. So it's really helping me now because you know we're making tv shows and we're doing yeah kinds of things so i'm actually i think better equipped now to do what i'm doing than i was then everything from your past all yeah. accumulates in your yeah. future work yeah yeah if you don't mind jake we're gonna finish up with some internet true or false on july 7th 1989 approximately 40 people watched nirvana open up for the hip at the okay's corral in madison wisconsin internet true or false true i even have the poster <laughs> oh yeah yeah and we gave away cassettes of the mini ep to people that night cassettes we, yeah we were touring in the u.s on our mini mini ep and it was in madison wisconsin 
The hip made their way into an economic theory textbook called Principles of Microeconomics, in which they are the musical example of a ticket-buying finance conundrum. Internet true or false? Um, I don't know about that, but I've heard about that. So I'd have okay. to do some research to make that uh, to confirm or deny. We'll make it a half-truth. The hip were immortalized when PlayStation 3 added the hip's blow it high dough to its rock band playlist. Internet true or false? That was after me, but okay. my understanding was it's true. And I'm going to give you one last one. The Tragically Hip composed original music for figure skating legend Kurt Browning. Very true. And Kurt was actually in the studio, in, in the band studio in Bath, Ontario, mm -hmm. with the band. Directed them through the whole process and everything else. Kurt became a good friend of the guys. I want to ask you, you've met so many people in your career is there anyone who really stood out to you as a just a fabulous person? I, I would say there's a lot of those people, to be honest, and it sounds self-serving. Honestly, uh, my partner, Alan Gregg, was probably the best of all of them, so. That's good, and, and, and why? Because you guys were able, obviously, to work well together, but he's just, you gotta be a good person, regardless of your skills. You know, Alan was, uh, when I met Alan, he was a hugely successful businessman already with a, a, a very, very smart marketing background, being a public opinion pollster. Because of that, he brought things to our partnership that you know most people had never seen before, especially in the music industry. And you know, I lost my father when I was 17, and even though we were only six years apart, there was a bit of a father figure kind of thing in there because he was, you know, he had wife, he had three kids, you know, he was playing a father, he was a father. And I was still this scrappy guy, you know, I was, mm -hmm. when we met in 86, I was uh, still 27 years old. But it became a really good partnership because it's like, he had no problem passing his knowledge on to me. And he would always say to me, like, you, you know, I tell you something, and you end up being better at it than me. Like you end up learning more about it than I do. And so, so that was our relationship, you know? Uh, he jokes, he says, you used to be a hedgehog, now you're a fox. <laughs> we, we all need great mentors and yeah, to be so able to find he, someone. He was my greatest mentor without, without a doubt. Business-wise, you know, showing me how to, you know, build a, a cash flow projection and a business plan and those kinds of things because I had no formal education. So mm -hmm. I learned as we went, but things stick with me. So yeah, yeah. Well, a, a great partnership, and as you say, still great friends today. Yeah, yeah. Jake, thank you very much for your time. As we wrap up, where can we best follow you and all the projects you're working on? Um, you know what? Uh, just follow my clients. I don't. It, I'm not about me. I'm about my clients. Um, my Instagram's private, so I may not even allow let you follow me. So um, <laughs> the tragically hip. Uh, we have this young artist named Ethan Sermon, a band called Commandeer. Uh, I, I work with The Pursuit of Happiness, uh, and I manage a bunch of great producers, Russell Broom, uh, Mo Berg from The Pursuit makes is a producer as well. If you want to follow me, follow my clients. That's that's all that matters, really. The consummate manager, always promoting his, his crew, makes sense to me. Jake, thank you very much, and I wish you uh, continued success for the remainder of this year and going forward. Thank you, Andrew, and Happy New Year. Shana thank you to you as well. Yeah. Shana Tova to you as well. And to the listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends <laughs> Podcast. 
On behalf of Jake Gold, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.